you're not yet um, what a what an opportunity we have every Sunday to worship God through singing through praying through giving and also by um, worship by the hearing of the Word of God if you've never considered this um, I invite you to do this to do it um, it is beautiful to think of the preaching of the word as our act of worship it actually engages our soul, our hearts, our minds, our, our strength. Sometimes you have to pray for strength because I've seen some of you falling asleep during the sermon. So it's, uh, it's kind of like, oh, I have to engage everything. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Last, uh, last week, we began exploring this um, idea of the embedded theology. Now, every person in the world, Christian, non-Christians, believers, non-believers, they have a set of internal beliefs that guide their everyday decisions. And sometimes these are very subtle. People don't realize they have them. Most Christians, most of us have uh, what is called the embedded theology. By that I mean the, the things that we draw from uh, as we live our lives, the things that we actually believe, uh, the things that we actually uh, even cannot even articulate sometimes, but we, we, uh, we manage, we live our lives by those things. And we are in 1 Corinthians where we are going to be uh, checking out, discovering the embedded theology of the Corinthians, what they actually believed behind their statement of beliefs. And it is really fascinating to, um, to understand a little bit more of that because it, is, it helps us discover how, much, how many things we do um, by the implicit theology or belief system that we have. Now, this morning, um, we'll talk about a very particular issue with the Corinthians. We're going to stay in chapter 5 and 6. I'm going to give like a summary of it because it's really long. We're not going to be reading a lot of, the, of the, uh, the text, but I invite you to read it at home. I was looking for the actual translation of Un Poco de Veneno No Mata in English. I don't know if we have a saying. You, most of you guys understood that in Spanish. Uh, what doesn't kill you make you stronger? What do you think? It's kind of similar, you know, the idea that a little bit of that poison is not going to kill you, right? If you put a little bit of it, it's going to make you stronger, actually. That, that may be true most of the times. Um, there are some exceptions. For example, the other day, I was at home by myself, and I decided, not because my wife gives me orders, but because I choose to obey her without... Uh, Fabiola, I've been thinking about it, and I love cleaning the bathroom. I love it. She doesn't even have to tell me. She just, uh, she just thinks about it and gives me a look, and I go do it. And so they left, and she told me, clean, she didn't tell me to clean the bathroom. She, she hinted that I, the bathroom was dirty, and the bathtub was dirty. So I decided I'm going to surprise my wife, and I'm going to clean it. The only way I I know how to do it, which is very deep, very like, you know, like I, I, I put in my heart and my soul and my spirit and my strength when I clean the, the bathroom. And I have a little bit of OCD, I guess, because there are some spots that I really don't like. And we have an, an old tub in the, bath, in the bathroom, in the shower, and I can't get the stains, stains off of it sometimes. And I use Clorox, the little uh, thing that you you guys know what I'm talking about. It's really powerful. Now, I used it all the time, but this time it didn't work. And I'm, I'm really wanting to get the thing off of it. And I remembered that some years ago, my brother Fernando, who is here this uh, morning, he gave me some acid 
that is used for uh, some particular very uh, difficult stains. It's, in Spanish, it's called acido muriático. How do you call that in English? Muriatic acid? Yeah, that's a, Think about muriatic acid. Muriatic. It kills you, right? And I know for a fact you shouldn't mix chemicals. And I said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so I said, what's going to happen if I just clean everything really good, get rid of all the Clorox that I put, and then I, I dumped a little bit of uh, acid in the tub? I know it's going to clean it real good. And so I did. Um, and uh, you, you, you guess what happens. Because I cleaned the, the uh, exterior of the tub, but in the actual drain, there is a lot of Clorox there. And so I put a, some of it, and I stay cleaning the, the, you know, the other parts of the bathroom. And then a few minutes later, I'm like, what's happening? And my throat started to close, and my eyes are really teary, and I'm, I'm choking, and I don't know. And I remember, oh, uh, 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 what, doesn't, what doesn't kill you make you strong? Not true. It actually kills you. All right, if you put a little bit of poison in something, it's, it's going to kill you. Now, the idea that, you know, if you put a little bit of bad into something, it's not going to actually affect you. Um, could be true in certain um, aspects of life, but for the most part, if you put a little bit of uh, manure in your ice cream, you're not going to like it, right? It's not going to do anything to the manure, but it's going to do a lot to the ice cream, and you won't enjoy it. So a little bit of something can kill you. So we're going to run with this idea today because this is part of what is happening in uh, chapter 5 and 6 in the, book of, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. It, we, we all have allowed a little bit of poison to poison our well, right? I mean, you say, like, it's not too, it's not too much, but, but if, if we have allowed a little bit of pride in our lives, it may destroy our relationships, right? Our idea of who we are. We allow a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, of wrath in our lives, a little bit of like like anger in our lives. It can destroy some things. If we allow a little bit of a, of of greed in our lives, we can run on it for a long time, and and it will end up killing you. If we allow a little bit of um, uh, lost in our life, L-U-S-T. It may not be too bad according to my idea, but eventually it's going to destroy my life. And so we're going to see today this, this idea uh, that the, uh, the Corinthians are writing with and saying, it's not too bad. It's just a little bit. Paul, don't be so strict because we have this figured out. And so go with me to 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, and we're not going to read all the passages, all the whole passage, but we're going to read some of it, especially the first part, because the first uh, few verses are shocking. What is happening in the, in the church in Corinth is shocking. Look at this. Uh, verse 1 um, and down, it says, It is actually reported that is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Now, he's talking to the church, right? And he's telling them that he got the report that there is sexual immorality in their church, such as it is so bad that not even pagans, those who don't know God, are used to it. And he says, what is the problem? A man is sleeping with his father's wife. What? 
what is happening to this church with this uh, stepmom, this guy, whoever this person was, uh, sleeping with his father's wife. And so it's already bad what is happening. And then Paul says, and you're proud of it. And this is really shocking because you, you, you go like, I mean, this doesn't happen in church. <laughs> and if it happens, we all hide it under the table. You know, we don't ever expose it. But, but that we feel proud of it? What's going on here? Is that shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, your, put out of your fellowship this man who has been doing this? This is a shocking problem that is happening. So let me give you a little, um, a little um, uh, 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 summary of what is happening here. So from verses 1 to 5 in, in chapter 5, there is this case of sexual immorality. A man is sleeping with his, uh, with his father's uh, wife. And they're proud of it. Instead of being um, angry about it, they feel proud. How is this possible? How can they tolerate this kind of thing? And we have some modern examples. We'll talk about some modern examples that, that, that continues to happen sometimes. Then in verses 6 to 8, if you follow with your, with your side and you keep reading, uh, Paul uh, actually you know, puts the, 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 the dedo en la llaga, the, the finger on the... Yeah, exactly. The, yeah, exactly. Uh, he says the reason why they feel proud is because they have allowed some ease to, to, uh, to poison the, the, the dough. You know, they have allowed a little bit of poison. It's not poison, but it's, they have allowed a little bit of something to affect the whole thing, right? And so they have tolerated the, um, the sin and they're starting to abuse God's freedom. This is what's actually happening in the church. Verses 9 to 13, follow me. Paul actually uh, encouraged them to cut from the community that person. This is like an extreme kind of thing because, you know, uh, people uh, in church, we all sin. And to say that you need to cut a person, a man, for sin sinning, it's got to be such an extreme situation. But this is what Paul says. He says, you guys are thinking about and trying to judge the people outside of your community, thinking that you're better than them, but you're not judging the people inside of your community. Get rid of that person who is committing such a sin. And then verses 9, uh, I mean, in, 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 um, in chapter 6, I know I'm going a, a little bit far, uh, fast for this, but hopefully you can read it at home and get a, um, a, a wider um, understanding of it. Uh, in, verses, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, there is a, another problem. So the first one is the sexual immorality that has been tolerated. The second one is that they're really proud about what is happening. And the third one is that there is, there is a situation, somebody defrauded an, uh, another believer, and instead of finding among themselves a way of reconciliation and forgiveness, they actually go to court right away. They actually take it outside and they, they make a spectacle of the whole thing, right? And what the text is not saying, it's not saying that you shouldn't do that when it's necessary. Because believe me, if we ever had a problem that we have to take somebody to court for defrauding a, a person, we will. Or for abusing somebody, I will. But this is the first step is to have the gospel at the very center of it and act according to the gospel, right? Bring that person before the church. Talk about it. Expose it. Expose the sin. And then, if it doesn't get fixed, then you're going to take it to the court when it is appropriate. And if it's a, if it's a, a, a legal thing, you've got to take it, right? So that's what is happening. It says, two things he says in, in 1 to 8. 
chapter 6. He says, it is already shameful that you're fighting amongst yourselves. You're committing injustice and defrauding one another. But it is even worse that there is nobody in the church with the wisdom to actually uh, approach this situation. Because there is wisdom in the gospel to do these things. And, and uh, there might be some, some form of reconciliation or whatever, but at the end, the gospel will seek for justice no matter what, right? And so that is what is happening here. It says, you guys are not even, you're not even capable of treating this thing. And so the, the biblical, the gospel thing to do is to, to bring the matter before the church, to administer discipline in the church, and then when it's, when it's necessary to take it to the authority. For example, if a, if a woman in this church suffers abuse, I'll be the first one to take that man to jail. I hope you can, you can uh, know that. Uh, if there is ever, and, and I pray, and I hope, and, I, and we have systems in the church to prevent sexual abuse uh, among our children or the most vulnerable, like women and others, but if, if there is ever a problem like that, believe me, that person is going to end up in jail. He's going to be forgiven by us, but he's going to end up in jail. Because that's how, it's, that's how it needs to be treated. These guys are not even thinking about that. They're going straight to make a spectacle of whatever is happening in their churches. And then at the end, um, chapter uh, 6, verses 9 through 11, very famous passage. Because we always use it to judge other people. And Paul is actually exhorting the church to live uh, the life of the kingdom of God under the authority of Christ. This was written for the church, not for the non-churched. And he tells them, Christ has washed your sins. He has sanctified you. He has justified you. And then in verse 12 to 20, it's the actual problem and how Paul has some arguments for them. They say, it, it's quote in your Bible, probably you find the quotes. They say, everything is permitted. Everything is permissible. And Paul says, yes, but not everything is convenient or good for you. Can I do this? It's not a matter of can I do this. It's a matter of should I do this? Because I can do a lot of things, but that doesn't mean I have to do them, right? I can eat a whole cake. That doesn't mean I have to do it. I have the freedom to eat it, but if I do, especially if I continue doing it, you know what's going to happen to me, right? I'm going to lose my beautiful body. You guys know that. And, and then they say again, everything is permissible. And, and Paul says, yeah, but do not let yourself be dominated by anything. Because once you say it's about what I want, then you already lost the battle because it's about what you want. It's not about the gospel anymore. And then third, they say, well, if God made it, it's good for us, right? That's basically what they say. The food is for the body and the body is for the food. So the argument they're making is, if God made it, then it's good. And I've heard this argument now that, um, that you know, uh, marijuana is legalized. I've heard this argument many times. Well, if God made it, it should be good, right? And Paul says, do not let yourself be dominated by anything. Show restraint, show wisdom, show the, uh, the, show the freedom that you have in Christ. The fact that you are able to do it doesn't mean that you have to do it. There is a different way. And he ends up these two chapters saying, because you do not belong to yourself, you belong to God. He actually put his spirit in you. He bought you by, with a prize, which is the blood of his son, so you may live to glorify him. Thank you for the amen. It's encouraging. So we see the church facing these three problems that I already mentioned them. Tolerating sin, especially sexual immorality. 
the, the arrogance, the pride, uh, you know, before the sin, and then the quarrels among them. And also, I would add a fourth one, the excuses of trying to find a little way out so they can continue doing like that. Now, but what is the problem behind the problem? You know, usually when you have a situation, you can trace it down to a bigger situation, a hidden situation. Uh, you say, well, sin. Of course it is sin. And the answer is Jesus. Of course we know that. But let's think theologically about what the text is saying, and let's kind of like, like break it down to see what's, what's the real problem here. What is the root of the problem, the problem behind the problem? You may say, well, I'm lacking con concentration. I cannot concentrate myself. Maybe you're watching too much TV. Maybe that's the problem behind the problem. Maybe you're spending hours and hours, um, uh, you know, uh, um, on, on the social media platforms, and I, I, I can't finish my work. It's too much. I only have a few hours a day. Yeah, but you spend another few hours doing th some things that are not profitable to you. So the real problem is something other than what you think is the problem. We're going to talk about this in a minute. But before that, let me say that it is possible, right? And, and think about this. It is possible to tolerate sin in our lives. It is possible. It is very possible to become prideful about the sin that we tolerate in our lives. It is possible to defraud our brothers and sisters in the faith and even the people outside of the faith. And it is possible to give a, a, a horrible witness of the life that is in us so we, even, so we may even become like people that don't know the truth. And you may think, well, you know, the church in Corinth, they had this problem because they're the old church. You know, the, we call them the, the primitive church. And when it says, the, you know, the primitive church, doesn't mean that they were hanging from, uh, from trees and, and having, uh, just covering their, their privates with, with some clothes or something. It only meant that they were the first church here. Uh, and so uh, when you talk about them, yeah, well, Corinth, maybe in those days, 2,000 years ago, you know, people were different. They were different, but we were basically the same human beings doing the same things we do today. Maybe less technology in some areas, maybe more technology in some other areas, but we're basically the same people. But let, granted, you say that happened before, it doesn't happen today. Let me tell you something really quick. There was civil war in this country in 1865, and a lot of Christians fought it because they believed that holding people as slaves was a good thing, and it actually was from the Bible. And there was a lot of churches involved in this. And they fought a war amongst their own brothers and sisters because they thought that having slaves was a good thing and God wanted you to have slaves. But that only happens in Corinth, right? Well, no, it happened here in 1865. Oh, that was 1865. I mean, we come a long ways now. We don't hold to those, to those very archaic ideas anymore. We think more progressive. We're better people, right? Hmm. A few weeks ago, one of our uh, largest uh, Christian denominations in the United States with, with over, I don't know how many thousand churches in the, in, in, in the United States and the world, um, uh, the report said that there's been documented cases of sexual abuse and psychological abuse from pastors to church members. And a lot of the, of the top leaders of the church knew about it and what they did, just put it under the rug. Shameful, right? 
That isn't, this didn't happen in Corinth. It happened here in our churches in America for the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Well, those are churches. Churches as, as a whole have problems like that. Maybe our church doesn't have those problems. I certainly don't have those problems. Those are really big words. You're trying to imply that we also suffer the same tolerance to sin than other people, but maybe to some sin, but not those things. A pastor in Sacramento last year after a man walked into a bar of homosexuals and killed a bunch of people. It's been a year already. A pastor in Sacramento say, good, they deserved it because they're gay. And I'm not... I'm not, the Bible is very clear about, you know, sexual immorality, homosexuality, and, and a lot of other things, right? And I'm not condoning those, I'm not condoning the behavior of those who were tragically killed in violence. What I'm, what I'm condemning is the guy who says, hey, good for them. I'm glad they're dead because they were homosexuals. What a shameful thing. What a shameful thing. But it doesn't happen among us. Maybe other churches, because we're not like them. Somebody from this church told me the other day, from our church, and I had to rebuke this person. He said, I'm so glad that the, the Israelites are killing all those Palestinians. Excuse me? Yeah, because the Palestinians, you know, they're against the Israelites, and they're the people of God, and we should support them when they kill the Palestinians. You should support the killing of innocent people? In, in which Bible do you find that? Where in the gospel of Jesus Christ do you find the condoning, the condoning and of, 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 of killing innocent people? And, and put aside the whole idea of, of Israel and the Palestine. Put aside that, you know Put it aside. Just think about this. The killing of innocent people. Is it right or is it wrong? What about if they murderers? Is it right or is it wrong? The Bible is very clear about this. You should not kill. This is, this is a thing that is reserved to God only. He judges. And he's the one who judges, right? So, well, man, those problems are those problems are not problems from Corinth. Those problems are from the church, from us all the time. So it is possible to tolerate sin. It is possible to become prideful. It is possible to forget about our good testimony. How is it possible? How can a church, a disciple, a sister, can compromise its faith in such a way that it's more a slave than a free? Than a, than a free person in the spirit. How can a church compromise its testimony and its faith and the gospel in, in, in such a grave way? What is the problem behind the problem? Have you discovered already? When they say, well, you know, it's not too bad if it's a little bit. As long as I don't hurt anybody else, as long as it's me and not them, that's, that, then it's not a problem. The problem is that they have exalted their desires, their passions, their opinions, their feelings, their affections above everything else. If as long as it is okay with me, then it, is, it should be okay with everybody else. 
The, the, the danger is not that they're being tolerant with sin in their lives. The danger is they're being intolerant with the gospel. They're not playing with sin. They're playing with the gospel. In other words, I really don't care what people think of me. I really don't care that I behave as a non-believer or worse. I really don't care to become full of pride. And I really don't care if my pastor or the elders or my brothers and sisters get upset with my behavior. I really don't care because at the end, who are they? I don't care what people say about me. The only thing that is important to me is, is how I feel, is what I like, is what I think is correct. The exaltation of my own desires and opinions and passions and, 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 and feelings above the truth of the gospel. Now, if you allow me a few minutes of your time, I'm going to um, just tell you that the embedded theology, which is the, 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 the system of beliefs that they didn't even know they had, was causing this problem. What was the problem with them? It's very possible that the church in Corinth had adopted a, a philosophical perspective coming from Plato. Uh, not Plato. Plato is the thing you play as a Plato, the philosopher, the Greek philosopher. Um, uh, in the world of that time and in the world today, Plato has played a major part in shaping people's um, identities and the way of thinking, right? We're still very platonic in many ways. We do a lot of things that, that Plato brought up to the humanity, and we still do them without even knowing. Now, the church in Corinth had bought into what is called dualism. And basically, dualism comes from, from uh, the Platonic idea that there is the, crea the, the spiritual world, which is good, more or less, and the secular environment or the world or the creation, which is bad. Right? So there is basically this main idea in which you can divide all of life into two categories. This one is a sacred category, and this one is the secular category. Have you ever heard a famous person, a politician, um, anybody that got in trouble because they found out he was doing something or she was doing something wrong, and they say, hey, that's my private life. This is my public life. I'm a good servant, I do my work, I don't mess with anybody. The fact that I like little girls 14 and 15 years old is not a problem. That's my private life. You shouldn't mess with my private That's dualism, right? This is the, se the secular, this is the sacred. And so the problem with the Corinthians and their, and their dualistic perspective or the dualistic philosophy is what happens to us too that we actually see those things that are sacred and the environments that are sacred, like put a name to, to it because there's, it's arbitrary. Nobody's going to tell you what is sacred for you. For some people, family is sacred. For some people, family is secular. For some people, uh, their job is sacred. Oh, he's a pastor. He should be sacred. And for some people, their job is secular. 
And we have these categories for everything, right? And in this version of the life, it's much easier to put things and to take things away from the place where you think they are. Like if I'm in my secular environment right now, I'm not a pastor. I can do mostly whatever I want with my life as long as nobody finds out. But when I am in my really sacred role, then I have to change my tone of voice, and I have to talk differently, and I have to wear certain clothes, and I have to tell you certain things, and I have to be nice to you even when I don't like you because I'm a pastor. But over here, if you find me on a Saturday morning with my shorts and I see you at Safeway and I don't want to say hi to you, I'm going to sneak around all the, the aisles and I'm not going to say hi to you. That separation between the sacred and the secular. It's a big problem for the Corinthians. It's a big problem for us. Because, because we're going to behave and we're going to act depending on where we think we are. If it's my private life, my secular private life, then I'm going to behave in a certain way. If it's my public sacred life, I'm going to behave in a different way. And this, this idea is not biblical. It's from Plato. Not everything he said is bad. I haven't read him like that to know everything he said, but what I've read and what I've studied, he doesn't say, not everything he says is bad, but a few things made its way into the church theology, embedded theology, and then they, it started affecting the life. For example, if you think that um, what doesn't kill you make you stronger or a little poison doesn't kill you, it's going to affect your salvation, right? Because we have this thing that is called the assurance of salvation, which means that when Christ saved you, he's never going to let you off of his hand, but it can be corrupted into once saved, always saved, and I can live my life however I want because it doesn't matter what, Jesus is going to take me to heaven when I die. So I can just be whatever I want. Dualism. It does affect your ecclesiology, what you think of the church. The church is the sacred place, the holy place, so when I come here, I have to be in a certain way. But as soon as I'm not in the sacred place, then I don't have to be that. The problem is you only spend here an hour and a half on Sundays. And if this is the only sacred environment in which you live, then the rest of your life, 99.5% of your life is non-sacred. It is secular, right? It affects your, Christ your Christology, what you think of Christ. If Christ is the Lord of my sacred life, then whatever I consider sacred, it is the Lord's. But whatever is not sacred, it is not the Lord's. He is not the king above all things. It even affects our, our, our uh, eschatology, how we view the end of times. Because, because if, if we believe that way, then what we believe is that one way we're going to go to heaven. Without bodies, we're going to be little angels with little wings. Where in the Bible do you ever find that? We believe in the resurrection of the body, in the life that is eternal, in spirit, body, and soul. See, it was Plato who believed that we will be separated from the created order and be taken up into the realm of the gods and we will be there forever. 
with them. It is Jesus who rose from the dead and he says what the Father, not in those words, but basically what the Father has done in Jesus Christ. This is N.T. Wright saying what the Father did with Jesus Christ on Easter, he will do for all of his creation on the last day. But it does affect how we view life because if my whole purpose is to go to heaven one day, I can trash all of this creation, right? I can abuse it as much as I want. It, it, God is going to destroy it anyway, so I can do whatever I want with it. I don't have to worry about all the trash that is around my church because at the end, it's going to be destroyed, right? Don't you know that God will bring beauty into the world? He will reclaim, he will reclaim his creation, the one that we lost, the one, the one that Satan took a hold of. God will reclaim it with his mighty hand, and he will say, everything is mine. All of it is mine. And he will bring beauty and love and compassion and justice. So what Paul says to them, if, you, if you're in the text, what Paul says to them is this. He says, it is crazy that you think that way. It's so inconceivable to think that you can be that and live like a pagan I was thinking of going to the beach and finding no water in the sea. It's so crazy as to think of, of the desert without sand in it. And for some of you that know Spanish songs like this uh, hideous pseudo-poet, Ricardo Arjona, who says it's like, it's like taking a, 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 how do you call pestañas? A la pestaña lo que nunca tuvo ojo. You guys understand, right? right? You know the song. It's like taking a... Uh, Eyelash to something that never had an eye. That's a uh, cringy poetry, but, but he's got a point. It, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's an impossibility, right? So, so Paul gives them two arguments. In chapter 5, he says, you've been recent with Christ. The new creation has been inaugurated. The kingdom of God has come. You must remember that you were washed, you were liberated, you were justified, you were sanctified. You must honor this way of living. And the second argument is in chapter 6. He actually says to them, he says, you were bought with the high price, with a high price. You don't belong to yourself, you belong to God. He said he, he even gave you his spirit. And if we remember anything of Paul's script, uh, Paul writings, he thinks of the spirit as the warranty for the future salvation. He says he gave you the spirit. And to the Ephesians, he says he is the warranty of your salvation. So he gave you his spirit. And he gives them, he gives them an example in verses, um, in verses uh, 9, 6, 6 to 8. He gives them this crazy example, okay? Now read it with me. Watch this. It says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens all, the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread of leaven, uh, the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, they were gen Christian, they were Gentiles, but one of the first things that the church did in the beginning through um, the proclamation of the gospel, the very uh, primary 
creeds of the church, which are found in Ephesians and Philippians and some in Corinthians, and then through the other teachings of the, of the, of the apostles, one of the very first things they did is they taught the Gentile churches that Christ could not and the gospel could not be understood outside of Israel. Okay, so they had to teach Israel history to the churches. So they would know the covenants and they will know everything about, you know, God's mighty acts of salvation that will culminate in the Messiah coming down from the heavens and taking on all of the creation and saving the whole humanity. So they had to know about the history of Israel. And one of the main things about Israel's uh, history is the Exodus, right? You guys know the story because you grew up in church and so you know about the Exodus. And, sorry, Sophie gave me this, and it's uh, falling apart now. Um, and so he uses the Exodus story to give them a crazy example of what they're doing. I mean, the Exodus story, story you know that God said to his people, I'm going to set you free. And the day when I do it, as a, as a memorial of your rede redemption, your liberation, and your salvation, I'm going to give you a dinner. You're going to sacrifice a lamb, and you're going to eat it. And along with that lamb, you're going to eat some unleavened bread. Just to remind you that I have set you free. You won't eat the, the leavened bread that, that, that points to captivity and points to... Um, two little girls just came out. I think it's Sophie and another little girl. Maybe somebody can check on them. They went on that, that way. Um, to, to the... Um, what was I saying? Oh, Sophie's there, right? I don't know. I'm tripping. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I just saw two little girls walked out of the building. and I, I... Anyways, so, so he says to them, this, this story, the story of the Exodus, in which God told his people, eat the lamb, the Passover lamb, with, that, with bread that is unleavened. Because that the leavened bre bread represents the slavery in Egypt, right? And then he tells them, look, if you were a Jewish person, and you're going to eat the Passover. And I bring you a big piece of bread, a leavened bread. You're going to be like, what's wrong with you? This is, this is heresy. This is bad. How could you ask me to eat the Passover meal with the signs of slavery upon my food? You give me a piece of unleavened bread that represents the freedom that I have. Do not bring me that bread because that bread represents the slavery. So Paul uses this example and he says, you guys, you're gonna, you have, you, Christ, the Passover has been sacrificed for you. Don't go back eating the leavened bread. It doesn't go with it. It's not the right way of celebrating God's salvation in you. It's, it's actually, an, uh, it's actually an, an offense to, to your Savior that you may even think that you're going to put yeast in your, in your bread and you're going to eat it like that. It says, no, it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Do not ruin it, please. Do not ruin the festival by bringing your leavened bread to us. Keep it real and keep it honest. It's an amazing example and they got it, right? The fundamental problem. Sorry, I'm taking too long. I'm about to finish. Well, you're stuck here. You can't go anywhere. You could, but I'm going to call you out. If you go out, I'm going to say, hey, please sit down. 
the fundamental problem of humanity has always been to exalt ourselves above the knowledge of God. How do we know that? The first three chapters in the Bible, which actually tells us everything about who we are and what we've done, give us, paint us a, 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 a picture of what is our problem. God says, I'm going to put you on this planet. You're going to be stewards. You're going to enjoy it. It's going to be yours, but you're going to be my icons. You're going to be the ones that carry my image. As, as, as more people are born into this planet, you are going to continue being my light to them. You're going to, people are going to see you and they're going to be, oh, yeah, that's what God's look like. And then he did the same thing with, with Abraham and then with Israel and then with the kingdom of David and then finally with the Messiah, right? Because all, the plan always failed. What happened to Adam and Eve? They said, well... It's good what you give us, but what if we take this other fruit that you specifically told us not to take? And they exalted themselves above the knowledge of God. Think of any problem that you have in your spiritual, no spiritual life, in your life right now. No such a thing as a spiritual life. That's not dual, that's dualism, right? Think about, about any problem that is, that is, that's been attached to you that you're struggling with. And tell me if it's not an exaltation of yourself above the knowledge of God. It, you can name it however you want. Pride, greed, lust, um, laziness, uh, hypocrisy. Just whatever it is, the point of that thing will be, I'm, I'm above God's law. And that's always been the problem. And we exalted ourselves to the heavens and we said, we will be like God. And in Christ, we see the complete opposite. It's the great reversal. The human being that exalted himself and said, I will be like God. Christ is the opposite. He says, I am the God who lowers himself in the form of a human being and become humiliated. The humanity who took the fruit and say, I do this because I'm exalting myself and I want to be like God is the opposite of the Messiah who was crucified in shame and naked, beaten. As we have exalted ourselves above the knowledge of God, the God of heavens has come down from the heavens and has humiliated, has, has humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. So if you want to put the two problems together, you will know, like Sunday school kids, give me the, the right answer, God, Jesus, the Bible, right? So if you want to put it together, just to close, what is the big problem? The big problem is sin. What is the big solution? Jesus and the gospel in him. And so when these two things are coming together, let them come together right now. Let, let them, let the Spirit bring them together right at this moment. Let the Spirit of God bring Bring together the, the, your life to encounter the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let, it, let them come together. Open, open your heart to the spirit of God. Open your eyes to the spiritual things that he's doing. Open, open yourself to the dance. He's dancing with you right now in your heart and in your mind. Just, just open yourself and think about this for a moment. He's intersecting you with the precious gospel of Jesus right at this moment. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? What result this good news is going to be to you?
Because believe me, this thing about church is not about giving you good advice. I can send you to a counselor for that. This thing is about giving you good news. It's about giving you the good news that Jesus Christ humbled himself as you exalted yourself against him. And so, and so if you allow that in this very moment, your life to be caught up by the, with the gospel, what is the result that you're going to be? Let me just hint to one that could happen if you allow this in your life. You will, come, you will come to experience God's freedom in your life. You will come, to, you will come to, to a point in your life when the little things that are holding you, your little desires, your little, and I'm not belittling, belittling those things. I'm just saying they're, they're futiles. What's the word in English? Futiles, futile, 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 something like that. Um, I'm not saying you're not important, but you're not important. I'm saying, yeah, exactly, April. I, I said that. Um, don't think that you're the, you, the. Don't think that you're very important. Don't think that I'm not saying that you're not important, but you're not important. Um, you'll you'll be able to put away those little little things, that, that little yeast that is poisoning you. Think about it for a moment. What is it? What is what is it? Pride, indifference. Lost, hypocrisy. What what is the what is the little thing that you're holding to? And if you allow the gospel to reach to you today, you will experience the freedom that is in Christ. You'll step on the head of the snake once and for all. You'll be able to say, I don't care if you offended me, I don't care if you don't trust me, I don't care, I don't care anything. Christ is more important than that. You will, you will find the renewal of your own life in Christ. And what you told before it was the greatest thing that would happen to you, you'll see it as, eh. Here an example one day, I'm going to end with this. I'm going to hear an example once about this journalist, this uh, a British um, journalist, which is actually a very famous person, um, Malcolm McGridge. Uh, he said one day, he said, um, if... You see me um, with the amount of money that I have. He said, I qualify to be on the highest ranks of the IRS. He said, now and again, and he said, you could call that wealth. He said, um, now and again, I hear uh, something I said or something I've written, and I see, uh, I see it of such an important that has made a contribution in the world because he was such a journalist. And he says, you, 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 you call that accomplishment. And he said, now, now and then I will be walking in the streets and somebody will come to me and say, aren't you Malcolm Mulgridge? And I'll be recognized by people and by places and you call that fame. He said, put all of that together. All of it. The wealth, the fame, the recognition. Put it all together. It doesn't even compare to one drop of the living water which is found in Jesus Christ. He said, it, it doesn't even compare. It's a hindrance to the living water of Christ. 